The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Good morning, Restoration Southside. I'm delighted to be back with you. My family and I recently went on a vacation, and it was very life-giving, so thank you to all that worked extra so that we could be away. We continue our study in Ecclesiastes this morning and look at Ecclesiastes 3. It's a very famous passage in the Bible. In fact, it's often used by those who don't necessarily ascribe to Christianity, and yet it'll still be used in people's funerals. This morning, we're going to look at just what it says and what it means for us now. It's like most of Ecclesiastes. It's a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow, but so that it can deepen you in your own hope. So let's look at it this morning. My favorite book is The Count of Monte Cristo, and in it, the quote by Alexander Dumas says this, There is neither happiness nor misery in the world. There is only the comparison of one state with another. He who has felt the deepest grief is best able to experience supreme happiness. We must have felt what it is to die, Morel, that we may appreciate the enjoyments of life. Live then and be happy, beloved children of my heart, and never forget that until the day God will deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. These words that he's passing down to us are similar to the words that are being spoken to us in Ecclesiastes 3. Is that grief can experience deeply alongside of happiness. That there are these experiences we have as individuals which kind of lay out the wholeness of the human experience. One more story before we dive in. Many of you have seen the movie Elf with Will Ferrell. There's this scene where they've just finished Christmas Day, the elves preparing and all of the hard work, and they're going in, going around, cheersing each other with a glass of milk, and Santa comes in. And he says, we've had another successful Christmas, and all the elves cheer, yay! And immediately he says, and now it's time to begin preparations for next Christmas, and all the elves go, yay! And sit down and immediately begin going back to work. The reason that I tell you that story is that often life can seem cyclical. Life can seem like there's so much repetition, we're not sure what to make of it. We don't know why some seasons last longer than others. Why we can't line up joyful seasons more often than we line up seasons of sadness. And the author looks us in the eye and tells us the truth about what it means to exist on this earth. So would you pray with me? We'll begin our study of God's Word together. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and kindness. I praise you for your Word and your Holy Spirit. And I ask now that you would be with us as we unpack this beautiful and yet difficult package. I pray that you would comfort your people and challenge your people. I pray for those that don't yet know you, that you would move powerfully inside them. We need your help. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the most famous pieces of literature is John Milton's Paradise Lost. It was written many years ago, and it's so long and full and robust. And it's a poem. And it basically tells the story of Adam and Eve and the fall of all of man. About how Satan worked against them and tempted them. And how he got them kicked out of the garden. Milton tells his purpose right up front. And he says, the purpose of this poem is to justify the ways of God to men. I didn't misspeak. To justify the ways of God to men. In other words, it's trying to make sense of what God does so that it's palatable for us. It's acceptable to us to justify God to us. As he was writing this, he was in a state of mourning and grief. He just lost his second wife. And things in England were so difficult. And he's basically trying to make sense of a broken world. Trying to make sense of the question of how can we believe in a God that is all powerful and good when things are so messed up. And so he tries to justify God to men. This passage does the exact opposite. This passage grabs us by the shoulders and looks us in the eye and strongly and yet lovingly says, God does not justify himself to you. Now, for those of you who are hurting and wounded right now, I want you to know that there is comfort in this passage. But it is hard to hear up front the tough medicine that God does not explain himself to us. And there are those of us who need that challenge, who need to be reminded that God works powerfully and beautifully for the sake of his children, but that does not mean that he's always going to give us the answers. God does not justify himself to his people. There's three things I want you to see in this text. I want you to see the pattern of God's timing. The pattern of God's timing. I also want you to see the perspective for our living. And then lastly, I do want you to see the posture that we should take. The pattern and the perspective and the posture. Let's look first at the pattern of God's timing. Glance with me again in verses 1 through 8. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Essentially, Solomon here is writing and explaining through all of his experiment on what it really means to live under the sun, what it really means to experience all of life is that there's these seasons in life of which we have no control. That's why he starts there with the first one, a time to be born and a time to die. Friends, you had nothing to do with your birth. 
nothing to do with your birth. And ultimately, no one knows the time of his or her death. The list is supposed to explain to us this beautiful pattern of how God moves and works through the world, and yet, even though there is a pattern, it's not understandable to us. That's what he says in 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? He's saying, in light of all of this, and I have no power of it, what's the point? The pattern of God's timing. He mentions time 28 times in this passage. And he's basically saying to us that expectations are everything. He says, don't be surprised when you fall into a hard season. Don't be surprised. The reason that is so poignant for us is because if you're like me, you are working nonstop day and night to make sure you fall in happy seasons. And then when bad stuff happens, we react surprised, thinking what has happened that we're in this difficult season. And it's looking at us saying, do not be surprised. There is a time for every season under heaven. What he's basically saying to us, and we don't like to hear it, is you are not in control. You are not in control. The rhythms of life are set by God, and you are not in control of them. William Bryan said this this week. He said, it's hard work to engage in the intentional rhythm every day, knowing that even though you engage in the intentional rhythm, there are realities that we cannot escape. He said, how do we live lives of faithful purpose in our rhythms? When we see routine and mundane, the Lord sees increase, plentiful increase. So what we're called to do is to acknowledge that God is in control and that we're not. And we're supposed to enter into the seasons even though we're not in control of the seasons. If there's racial injustice and if it's messy, we enter into the messy. If it's sadness, we enter into the sadness. If there is growth, we enter into the growth. If someone dies, we enter into the death, experiencing it with those who are also grieving. He's saying you can't control the seasons, but you can control your attitude towards the seasons. That's why he's prepping us. He's saying these expectations for which you handle life are going to set the tone of how you feel about life. Let me be more clear. If you think it's always a time to weep, always a time to weep, and then there's something good that happens, you'll miss it. Because you're cynical, because you're sad, because you're hurt, and you might miss the time to laugh and play and build relationships. If you think there's a time to die, you might always be focused on that and miss the time for life. Or there's others of us who as Christians put on a happy face and think it's always only the good things. Time to be born, time to plant, time to heal, time to build up. And when we get hit with the realities of life, which we've just been hit hard with in the last six months, we don't know what to do. It doesn't add up with our conception of who God is and how our world works and what the 
author is saying here is that God is in control and we are not. But in these rhythms of life, we're supposed to have expectations to enter into rhythms that we cannot control. There are good things in this passage somewhat and bad things in this passage. You've heard them in there. When the disquieting things happen, that's what Zach Eswine calls them, the disquieting things, we tend to think God is against me. When you experience a time to pluck up what is planted or a time to break down or a time to weep, the first thought is God is against me. God is against me. You feel that? And what the passage is saying is what if written into the fabric of creation are these rhythms that are not personally against you at all. It's the sovereign hand of God at work. And yet when something goes wrong in our lives, we immediately conclude, God is against me. And he's saying, what if you could zoom out and realize that God has more going on than just your experience of your story and that God is not necessarily against you? The same thing is with the delightful things in this passage. The time to dance, the time to be born, the time to sow, the time to love. What about the wonderful things? It's when we experience those things that we say, God is for me. God is for me. My kids, when they're unhappy with my parenting, they tell me what kind of parents they're going to be like. My son explains to me that he's going to always say yes. Always allow what is asked. Always give instead of withhold. And I want to look at him and say, I don't want to see how my grandchildren turn out. The point is, is we are very much like my son who thinks if God really loved us, all he would do is give. All he would do is say yes. And just as a parent knows, yes isn't always the best thing for a child. God knows what is best for us. We see that in the disquieting rhythms and in the delightful rhythms, God is in control and we are not. Phil Riken says this, the wise and regular and orderly administration of one who sees the end from the beginning and to whom there is no unanticipated contingency and whose omniscient eye in the midst of what us appears to be inextricable confusion, hear this, has a thorough and intuitive perception of the endlessly diversified relationships and tendencies of all events and their circumstances, discerning throughout the whole perfection of harmony. He concludes this, to put it very simply, God does everything at just the right time. How that's supposed to encourage you is that you don't understand at all times what God has in mind. That what you're experiencing isn't all that there is out there. And it's good to remember that. That I can't quite sense what he's doing and what he's up to. And it's good to be reminded of that. We, as God's people, sometimes in our world, have used God's sovereignty, this topic that means God's in control of all things. We've used it to mute the human experience, to say, well, God's in control. Well, I know you're hurting, but God's in control. 
in this passage holds God's sovereignty and our experience together and says, you can trust that God is at work and is in control and you can be confused by it. Did you hear it? In verse 11, he says, he's made everything beautiful in its time and he's also put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God purposefully holds together his sovereignty and our experience and says, you are not going to get it all the time or even very often. And it's supposed to send us running to dependence upon him. God is sovereign over the whole of human experience. We like to think of this only as the God of birth and love and peace and not the God of death. God that breaks down. The God who brings times of loss. But if we're going to trust who God says he is, we have to hold those things together. It's these pairs that are purposely opposite so that it covers each opposite and everything in between. But when we're struggling and we're hurting, we say, why me? Why did I lose this job? Why can't I have this baby? Why am I still alone? Why is my marriage not like their marriage? Why are my kids not like their kids? Why me? Nancy McClellan, an incredibly godly woman who's passed away in 2018, lived her life pointing other people to Jesus. Before she had passed away, she had been diagnosed with ALS and she'd been sick for three and a half years to the point where she couldn't speak anymore. But her testimony was so powerful, she actually taught and encouraged us at an officer's retreat for Lookout Mountain Prez. And people were asking her questions about her suffering and what that meant to her. And she could only answer by writing on this overhead projector the answers to the question. And somebody seeing her standing up there, brittle, after having lived this life of faithfulness before God said, Nancy, do you ever feel like you should just say to God, why me, why me? And her hand went to the overhead projector and she slowly wrote out the words, why not me? Why not me? It's as if she is saying the God who has rescued me, the God who has been kind to me and sustained me, am I to take good from him and not bad? Am I to start questioning him even when it doesn't go well for me? What the author is urging us to remember is that we are not in control. We are not to be surprised by difficult seasons. We are not to expect perfect, happy seasons all the time, but that we can set our expectations that there's a time and a season for everything and that God can be trusted. That's ultimately what he's communicating in verses 9 through 11. You see the pattern, but now let's look at the perspective we're supposed to have in verses 9 through 11. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out from God what has done from the beginning 
to the end. The comfort amidst the challenge that things are not in our control is that God knows what he's doing. That's the perspective that we're supposed to have is that God knows what he's doing. God has made everything beautiful in its time. God has made everything beautiful in its time. And you might pause there and think, how could that possibly true? God has made everything beautiful in its time. But if you look back on the whole of scriptures, that's what's happening over and over and over again. We don't know what God is doing, but that doesn't mean he doesn't know what he's doing. Do you remember Rankin Wilborn reminded me of this. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Sold into slavery by his own brothers. I'm sure Joseph had no idea what God was doing. And yet because he was there, he was able to rescue his family and ultimately his entire nation from famine. Or how about with Moses? Moses kills someone he's not supposed to kill and he flees out into the wilderness and it looks like life is over for him but because he fled, because he ran away, he encounters the true and living God and is able to rescue his entire country from Egypt. Or how about King David? What do you know about King David? If you're like me, you hear King David, you think Bathsheba. You think Bathsheba. The worst thing David ever did, steal another man's wife. He'd kill that man. He would hide and run from it. What good could possibly come from this? Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. The things that so remind us that we're safe in God's care when we confess. These testimonies that stand long with us that God can be trusted even to handle our ugliest of sins and it came out of David giving in to sin. Now what I'm saying is this, not that God loves that David sinned or that God loves that Moses murdered somebody or God loves that Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, but that God can use ugly things to accomplish the beauty in his plan. A woman in South Carolina once said, God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And God will make it up to us. Look in verse 15. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. God seeks what has been driven away. What he's saying is every loss you've experienced, every death, every sickness, every wound, every embarrassment, every injustice, whether big injustice or small, the ways that you've been mocked and humiliated, every single one of them, God will go back and retrieve. Gibson says it like this, God will retrieve every single injustice and every single time and every single activity. What he's saying is that though we are in time, a time to be born and a time to die, God is transcendent. That he will make it right. He will go and shepherd and bring back those moments of injustice. God can be trusted with our stories and our seasons even when we can't see what he's doing. There's the comfort. 
But the challenge is this, and it's hard. God does not answer to us. God does not answer to us. You remember the story of Job from the scriptures where Job is put under all of these severe trials because the devil says that he will doubt God when bad stuff starts happening to him. And God says, okay, you're allowed to do it, but you can't kill him. You can't kill him. And throughout the long book of Job, Job first answers rightly and in a godly way and trusts that he has to expect hard things from God as well as good. And then he has friends who come and try and comfort him, but they basically just blame him for what he said, what he's done, trying to figure out what secret sin he really has. And ultimately, Job loses it and sort of goes at God. Goes at God and says, why me? Why is this happening to me? Now, I want you to remember that in that moment, God could answer him. We, the audience, know what happened. God could say, listen, Job, devil was roaming around in my courts and I made a bet with him and I knew I was going to win and I knew I could sustain you and that's why you're going through what you're going through. We, the audience, knows. God knows. Job doesn't know. And friends, God doesn't tell him. He does not explain to him why Job had to go through this. Instead, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Then a few verses later, he says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? What he's reminding Job, even though he could tell him the reason for his suffering, is that God does not answer to us. We answer to God. And I know that's strong medicine. It's that kind of cough syrup which gets caught in your throat because the flavor is so strong, it's hard to admit. But once you submit to it, there's actually great comfort in it that I don't have to be God. I don't have to make sense of this mess. I don't have to explain away God so that I can have mental peace. God saying, I do not explain myself to you. And that's hard. But the reason that he's saying that is, is how could you think you have a better sense of justice than I do? I will care for you. I will be good to you. I will make things beautiful in its time. I will rescue. I will bring back all the injustices and make them right. So how dare we go at him and shake our fist as if he is unjust? It's trust in God's timing. Many of you know Tim Keller has been diagnosed with cancer, and it's a very difficult kind of cancer. He sent out prayer requests so that people would know what's on his heart. And he prayed that these things might pull him from the loves that he finds on this earth, that it would wean him from the loves of this earth and prepare him for the love in heaven, for the presence of God in heaven. And he also prayed that 
he would still have enough energy and health to write and preach the gospel. Somebody who obviously trusts that God knows what he's doing and that he can find rest, not in what he would like, but in what God has ordained. Rankin Wilborn says it this way, don't let what you can't control poison what you can enjoy. Don't let what you can't control poison what you can enjoy. He's saying you can't control what kind of people your kids are gonna be, but you can enjoy the small moments with them. You, can, you can't control what's gonna happen to your career, but you can work hard and be faithful. There's so many things that we can't control, but we let it ruin the simple things that we're supposed to enjoy. That's what he says in 12 through 15. The posture is joyfully serving God and fearing God. Joyfully serving God and fearing God. Look with me in 12. He says, I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever and nothing can be added to it nor taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear him. He wants us to do three things. We are not in control. We're supposed to celebrate and submit to the fact that we're not in control and not be surprised by difficult seasons and not try and play God. But instead, we're supposed to enjoy ourselves and work and fear God. Christians can be a total bummer. But instead, he frees us in this text to go live lives of joy. You're not in control, so don't pretend to bear the weight as if you are. Go live and be joyful because you know God has made everything beautiful in its time. And then he says, serve God. Go and wear yourselves out. He says, this is God's gift to man that you can work, do good, take pleasure in your toil. That's your gift, is that you serve God joyfully and you work whether that's a stay-at-home mom, whether that's a busy doctor, whether it's a creative professional, whether that's a pastor, is to stop worrying about the reputation, stop worrying about the things you can't control, and serve God with a happy heart. He's saying, know your place, and it's not God's throne. And then lastly, he says, we're supposed to fear God. And by fear God, he doesn't mean ter- be terribly afraid of him. He means be in awe of him, reverence and awe. He's basically saying, God does not ask your permission to rule this world. But he will take care of you in it. I want you to see for a second, you know that to be true in your experience. Aren't there moments where you thought this was the end? Nothing can be improved from here. This is the worst. This is the lowest. And if you're honest and you zoom out five years later, can't you see how that thing, which was so awful, was not only not awful, it's actually instrumental in shaping your story and your character. It's actually something that you look back on with a sense of beauty, that that's what made you who you are. That's what drove you to the feet of Jesus. That's what has sustained you. Now look, I want you to look back at your own story to do that. It's not your job to tell other people in their story to do that. Oh, you're struggling? Well, look back and see what God has done in your life. It's what you're supposed to do for yourself. And listen lovingly 
to those who are hurting. Those of you who don't believe, you want intimacy, but haven't you found that it's never enough? You want true beauty, but then you find that other lesser beauty still distracts you. You want power and influence, but you start to realize more power is never enough. I wonder if all of this looking, searching, is not confirming your suspicions that happiness cannot be found in this world. It's instead antagonizing you. We'll close here. Lewis says it's ultimately supposed to point us to another world. Point us to another world. In other words, if we can't control the seasons, and we can't control what happens, and all we can control is our reactions to what happens, shouldn't it prove to us that we have desires, we have longings that weren't meant for this place, but that were meant for another world? Lewis says, the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, the news from a country we have never visited. Friends, that's what this text is saying. And where do we see Jesus in this? Where do we see Jesus? Jesus faces tragedy so that our time is not meaningless. Jesus faces death so that we can embrace life. Jesus is killed so that we can experience healing. Jesus ultimately is this picture of where God takes things that are ugly and don't make sense like the death of his own son and use it to bless the whole world. Think about your story. What are the things that are difficult and seem to make no sense? And how is God going to use that to bless the rest of the world? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness to us. We are not God. You are. Help us to know our place, to be comforted by the fact that you have made everything beautiful in its time. Help us to be challenged by the fact that we are not in control. Father, help us to have a perspective that points us to your son, Jesus, where we can laugh and play and work and fear God, and that we can lay down the burden of trying to be God when we're not. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.